19, 137. Psalm 119, 137, and we'll read from there to 144. Psalm 119, verse 137 says this, Righteous are you, O Lord, and upright are your judgments. You have commanded your testimonies in righteousness and exceeding faithfulness. My zeal has consumed me because my adversaries have forgotten your words. Your word is very pure, therefore your servant loves it. I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and your law is truth. Trouble and anguish have come upon me, yet your commandments are my delight. Your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we confess and know that you are a righteous God. And that everything that you say and everything that you do, Lord, you do in righteousness. Lord, your righteousness is found in your holy word. Lord, the righteous word of Christ. And so we pray, Lord, that we would have this conviction. Lord, that we would never doubt, Lord, that your word reveals to us your righteousness. Lord, that we would never question it, but that we would always have this conviction Lord, as we open and as we read your word, Lord, as we hear your word taught, that every single word of God, Lord, every single verse found in this Bible, Lord, comes from a God of righteousness and is itself revealing to us what your righteousness is. So, Lord, may we believe this and not trust in our own and, Lord, not trust in any other source of righteousness, but only in Christ and only what he has revealed to us. So, Lord, be with us today as we study your word. Help us, Lord, to understand, Lord, to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, Isaiah chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, there the prophet Isaiah says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own insight, right? When men trust in their own insight, when they are clever in their own mind, in their own thoughts and ideas, instead of trusting the word of God, then evil is called good and good is called evil, right? There is no righteousness when men turn away from the law of the Lord. And this is the problem we see manifested in our own day. In our society, there is no righteousness. There is no justice, Because people have rejected the righteousness of God found in the word of God. And instead, they trust their own ideas. They determine righteousness according to what is right in their own eyes. Just this week, I read an article about a man in Chicago, this liberal paradise, who was convicted of murder in 2009, but received parole three months ago on some technicality, and then last weekend proceeded to kill three more people, and critically wound another one in this wonderful place called Chicago. And when you see those kinds of things, you wonder, how is something like this possible, right? How can righteousness and justice be so subverted in our day that a man who is a convicted murderer be spared execution, then be released back into society only to commit the same crime again? 
These types of things happen because of a false understanding of justice and righteousness. These types of things even happen under the name, under the guise of justice. They will call it criminal justice, right? Justice for the criminals instead of justice for the innocent victims. And these types of incidents happen hundreds of times a year, hundreds and hundreds of examples where innocent people suffer because there is no righteousness, no justice in the land. And this is no different than the situation that the prophet Habakkuk was confronted in in his own day. He says in Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore, the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous, therefore justice comes out perverted. Today, true justice, true righteousness is lacking because men trust their own wisdom and not the wisdom of God. Everyone determines righteousness and wickedness, good and evil, truth and error, based on their own insight, based on their own understanding. They do what is right in their own eyes. Well, we cannot do this. We have to go to a standard. And where can we go and find a standard of righteousness that is not dependent on the ever-changing opinions of sinful men? Right? A standard that does not depend on the passage of time, that does not depend upon the whims and ideas of sinful men. Where can we find a standard of true righteousness? And it is only in the word of righteousness. The righteous word of God will teach us about the righteous God. The righteous God of the Bible is revealed in the Bible. And his righteousness is not based upon the opinion of men. But it is an authoritative declaration from God who is himself altogether holy and righteous. We have to go to the word of God. So let's go to the word of God and see what the word of God says about the righteousness of God. Psalm 119, 137. Righteous are you, O Lord, and upright are your judgments. There he declares, righteous are you, O Lord. The prophet knows this to be true. He knows, he has this conviction that God is righteous. That righteousness is essential to the nature of God. Righteousness defines who God is. And if God is righteous... If we have this understanding, then the proper conclusion is that whatever comes from him must also itself be righteous. If God is righteous, then whatever he does, whatever he says, whatever he commands must also be righteous. We must believe this truth. We have to believe this truth. You cannot be a Christian without believing this truth, that God is righteous. We must have this Conviction that God is the standard of righteousness by which all other claims to righteousness must be measured, especially in relation to sinful men. Because men, sinful men, they entertain some notion of their own righteousness or of their own goodness. Even many people believe, even many so-called Christians believe, that good people go to heaven. Even many Christians say this, that as long as your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, then you're going to make it to heaven. And as long as you're not a murderer, or commit adultery, or rob banks, or beat puppies, or do those kinds of things, then you're a good person, and you're a righteous person, and you're going to make it to heaven one day. 
because good people go to heaven. But the problem with this line of thinking is how they define good, how they define righteousness. The standard by which they determine a man's righteousness is their own ideals and their own opinions. They use their own judgment to determine who is good and who is bad. But the Bible teaches us that we must use God's judgment. We must use God's standard. We must go to the word of God and determine righteousness based upon the declaration of God, not based upon the opinions of men. It says in Luke 18, Luke 18, verses 18 and 19, a ruler questioned him saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, when we read that, we might be puzzled. Why is Jesus saying, why are you calling me good? Because no one is good but God alone. Well, isn't it true that Jesus is God? And isn't it true that Jesus is good? But this man, this ruler, is only saying that in relation to his humanity. He does not perceive Jesus as divine. And he believes that Jesus is a good teacher, that he is a good man, and that Jesus can help him maybe be a better man or that he can judge himself and compare himself in relation to Christ. And this is why Jesus turns his attention to God. You're dealing in issues of goodness and righteousness. Who are you comparing yourself to? Don't you know and understand that no one is good but God alone? So why are you calling me good with this false idea in your mind that you yourself can be a good man? Right, if we compare ourselves to other men, Right? If going to heaven simply means that I need to be better than someone else, then sure and fine. We might be able to convince ourselves that we're righteous, and by our own good we will inherit eternal life. But this is a false premise. It is a false premise because the standard by which we must evaluate our goodness and our righteousness is not other men, but God himself. Amen. He is the standard of righteousness by which all other claims to righteousness must be weighed and measured. And when we judge ourselves, when we judge our righteousness in comparison to the righteousness of God, then what's the conclusion we must draw? What do we come in to see about ourselves? That we're not righteous at all. But on the contrary, we are completely, thoroughly unrighteous. Sure, a good person can go to heaven based upon their goodness, if their goodness is as good as God's. If they are as good as God, then sure and fine, good people can go to heaven. But who could be so foolish? Who could be so deluded as to claim and to think that his righteousness is as good as God's? That he is as righteous as God? When we contrast our so-called righteousness with the righteousness of God, then we see that our righteousness is actually unrighteousness. This is what we must see. Isaiah 64. Isaiah chapter 64, verses 6 and 7. Isaiah 64, verse 6 says, For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, and all of us wither like a, we like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls on your name, who arouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us 
and have delivered us into the power of our iniquities. There he says, all of us have become like one who is unclean. All of us, he says, not some of us, not the criminals, not those who are in prison. He says, all of us are like someone who is unclean. All of us, our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. This is who we are in comparison to God. When we look at our righteousness by the righteousness of God, this is the conclusion that we must draw, that we are filthy people, that we have no righteousness at all. Also, Job 25. Job 25. The prophet Job knew and understood these truths as well. Job 25, verses 4 to 6. There it says, How then can a man be just with God? Or how can he be clean who is born of woman? Even the moon has no brightness, and the stars are not pure in his sight. How much less man, that maggot, and the son of man, that worm? How can a man be just with God? How can a man be declared righteous in the sight of God? How can a man who's born of a woman, how can he be clean? How can he be sinless, undefiled in the sight of God? When you're comparing him to God, he says, even the sun and the moon, the stars and the moon, even they are not bright in comparison to God. And the star and the moon, they don't commit sins against God. But who does commit sins against God? Man who is a maggot, the son of man who is a worm. This is what we do to God. So how can we be right? How can we be righteous in the sight of God? Not through our own works, right? Not through our own deeds, only through the righteousness of Christ. And this is why we must measure ourselves, not according to the opinions of men, not according to our own ideas, not according to what the world says, but we must measure ourselves and our righteousness in contrast with the righteousness of God. God is righteous. Let God be true and let every man be a liar. Let God be righteous and every man be unrighteous. This is a conviction that we must have, that God alone is righteous and any defection from his righteousness is wickedness, right? It is evil. And men defect in many, many ways. We all stumble, James says, in many ways. Men transgress the righteous standard of God in many ways. Even if in the sight of men is considered a minor defection, we might say, well, it's not like I murdered anyone, right? It's not like I committed adultery with more women than I can count. It's not like I robbed a hundred banks. It's not like I took the stand and committed perjury there in the court of law. But if we deviate from God's righteous standard in one area, then that deviation is wickedness, right? That is a sin against God. Isn't that what happened with Adam and Eve in the garden? All they did was eat one piece of fruit. They did not murder a million people. Right? They did not commit adultery with thousands of people. They just ate one piece of fruit, but their action was a defection from God's word and God's righteous judgment on the matter. Because what did God say in relationship to that tree and to that fruit? Genesis 2.17 From the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. 
For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. That was God's righteous declaration, his righteous judgment in relation to the matter. You're not supposed to eat it. And if you do eat it, then you will die. This will be the penalty from God from straying from his righteous commandment. And then they did it. They strayed away from the commandment. And the same remains true today. Whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all of it. It says in James chapter 2, verse 10, God is righteous. His judgments are upright. We must believe and live according to this rule, according to what the Word of God says. Verse 138, You have commanded your testimonies in righteousness and exceeding faithfulness. Here, because God is righteous, then His Word, His commandments, His testimonies are also righteous and exceedingly faithful. Not somewhat righteous, not a little righteous, but exceedingly righteous and exceedingly faithful. Everything God says is right and true. This is what Adam and Eve rejected in the garden. They doubted the righteousness and the faithfulness of the testimony of God. They considered the opposite of what God said to be righteous. They thought that the good path was the pathway that strayed away from the faithful commandment of God. And they went on the evil path and they became transgressors. Well, we must be convinced that God's word is righteous and is exceedingly faithful. We cannot be like Adam and Eve who doubted the goodness of God's word. And this is the problem that we often have. This is the problem that you often see in the church and in the world. Many consider the Bible, they'll say, well, it's a good book, but they don't think it's a righteous book. They'll say it's good and we might follow it here and there, but it's only good on some things. It's partially righteous. It's partially faithful, but it's not exceedingly faithful and exceedingly righteous. On some things, they'll say what the Bible says is true and right, but on other things, we can listen to other sources. Because is the Bible really righteous? Is it really exceedingly faithful? Or is it just somewhat faithful? Right, because I heard this expert the other day, and he was talking about another way, and everything he said, it sounded really good. And he's a really nice guy, and he's very successful, and everyone else is listening to him, right? So why is it wrong for me to listen to him? Why should I uh, listen to the Bible in this area when I could listen and follow this man? So we can follow the Bible on some things, but then it's okay for us to follow others, to listen to other sources on some other things, right? Just pick and choose whatever you like, and this is the way that many people do it. But we can't be like that because God's word is righteous. Every single word in the Bible is righteous, and to deviate in one area is to commit sin against God. It is wickedness, and it is to believe a lie. It says in Isaiah 8, Isaiah 8, 19 and 20, When they say to you, consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. Why would someone want to consult a medium and a spiritist? Why would they want to consult the dead instead of consulting the Bible? Because they want another source of wisdom. They want to hear some other word. They want to hear some other uh, so-called truth 
that will allow them to commit their sin and they don't want to listen to the Bible. They don't believe that the Bible is the standard of righteousness. They don't believe that it is faithful, so they look for someone to tell them what they want to hear. But we can't be like this. We must believe the Bible is righteous, it is exceedingly faithful, and what it reveals to us is the very righteousness of God. Psalm 119, 139. My zeal has consumed me because my adversaries have forgotten your words. There he has zeal. Zeal consumes him. Righteous zeal, right? Zealous anger has completely overtaken him. When he sees the righteousness of God found in the word of God and then compares that to what's going on all around him, the sin, the wickedness that he sees all in the world, he is overwhelmed with zeal for God. And this is good zeal. This isn't something that's evil. He's overwhelmed in a good way when he sees all that has taken place around him. A couple of examples. Numbers 25. Numbers chapter 25, verses 1 to 13. This is what happened with Phineas whenever he saw his adversaries breaking the law of God. He was consumed with zeal for God and for God's word. Numbers 25, verses 1 to 13. It says, While Israel remained at Shittim, there the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. For they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor, and the Lord was angry against Israel. The Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of the people, Each of you slay uh, his men who have joined themselves to Baal of, of Peor. Then behold, one of the sons of Israel came and brought to his relatives a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the sons of Israel, while they were weeping at the doorway of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he arose from the midst of the congregation and took a spear in his hand, and he went after the man of Israel into the tent and pierced both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman, through the body. So the plague of the sons of Israel was checked. Those who died by the plague were 24,000. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, has turned away my wrath from the sons of Israel, and that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not destroy the sons of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, Behold, I give him my covenant of peace, and it shall be for him and his descendants after him a covenant of perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the sons of Israel. Israel. There, when Phineas sees this sin being committed in broad daylight, contrary to the commandment of God and contrary to this declaration that those who are doing this should be put to death, he is consumed with zeal for God. His zeal consumed him, and then he went and did something about it. He did what he was called to do according to the word of God. Another example would be John chapter 2, our Lord Jesus Christ. John chapter 2, verses 13 to 16. 
John 2, 13. It says, the Passover, the Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Here, our Lord Jesus as well, when he saw what was taking place in the temple, the exploitation of the people, the conversion of the temple, which was supposed to be a place of worship, supposed to be a house of prayer for all the nations, where men could come and inquire of the Lord, offer prayers to God, worship God. This is what there should be taking place there in the temple. And yet instead, they've turned it into a money-making scheme where they are exploiting the people. When he saw this, he was consumed with zeal. It aroused within him a righteous anger that led him to make a whip, right? And he didn't do that hastily. He did not do that irrationally. He made a scourge of whips, and then he drove the rotten bums out of the temple with their animals, overturned their tables, and threw their money on the ground. And then the disciples remembered. Psalm 69, 9. Zeal for your house has consumed me. They knew that Psalm 69 was a messianic psalm. And they remembered that this psalm taught that when Messiah comes, he will be consumed with zeal for the house of God. And when they witness Jesus cleansing the temple, then they are reminded that one of the traits of the Messiah is zeal for the house of God. And they see what he's doing there in accordance to the word of God. This is the same as Psalm 119, 139. His zeal has consumed him because his adversaries have forgotten the word of God. Notice there as well, his adversaries are said to be those who have forgotten your words, right? If they have forgotten them, that means what must have been true. They had to have known them at some point. So we're not talking about pagans here. We're not talking about those who don't know the Word of God or have no access to the Word of God, but those who have been instructed in the Word of God, but then willfully choose to forget what God's Word says. If they have forgotten, it is because they used to know. They know what the Bible says on the matter, but they choose to forget because they do not want to obey. They turn away their ear from listening to the law, as it says in Proverbs 28, verse 9. Psalm 119, 140. Your word is very pure. Therefore, your servant loves it. The word of God is very pure. 100% pure. Without any mixture of error. It is not 90% pure. It is not 99% pure. It is not 99.99% pure. It is 100% pure. If the word of God was placed in a refining fire, there would be no dross to come to the surface. There would be nothing there that is impure. It would be pure before it went in, and it would be the same purity whenever it came out. Because that which is perfectly pure cannot become more pure. It is already perfectly pure. 
This is what the prophet means when he says, your word is very pure. It is pure. The word of God is pure without any mixture of error. There's not one single lie found in the Bible. No inaccuracy in the Bible. Whether it's relating to morality, whether that's relating to doctrine, whether that's relating to historical facts, whatever is in the Bible, it is true without any mixture of error. And this has to be the case. How could it be any other way? Because where does the Bible come from? It comes from God. And God is pure without any mixture of error. God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. It says in 1 John chapter 1, God is perfectly pure, so His Word that comes from Him is also perfectly pure. When someone raises a doubt about the Bible, when someone questions the integrity of the Bible, the purity of the Bible, right? this is what people will do. Is the Bible true on this topic? Right? Is the Bible pure? It doesn't have integrity on what it's saying about this topic. Well, we can have full confidence that whatever topic addressed in the Bible, it is right. It is right. It is authoritative. It is true. It is pure on that topic. In any doubt that arises, whether in our own mind or whether in the mind of another person, we can always be certain that God's word is pure and the one questioning the purity of the word of God They are the impure ones. They are the ones that are filled with sin and defilement. And if it's coming from us, then we need to repent of it. Let God be true and let every man be a liar. The true believer has this conviction. We must start with this premise. The Bible is very pure, very pure. Every time we open the Bible, every time we come to hear the word of God, we must have this in our mind. The word of God is very pure. Now, many times people will say, well, we shouldn't have presuppositions. We should have an open mind, right? And can't let our judgments be clouded by presuppositions, right? When we are reading the Bible. Well, certainly, if the presupposition is unbiblical, then we shouldn't have it. But is this presupposition unbiblical? Is it sinful to come to the word of God before we even open it to have this thought in our mind? that everything in here is pure, everything in here is right, everything in here is true. That's not evil. That's a good thing. It's necessary for us to believe that we should not approach the Bible as a skeptic who thinks, well, the Bible may be pure or it may be impure, and I'm going to open it up and read it and determine for myself whether it is pure or impure. No, that's not the case at all. Whether we believe it or not, the Bible is very pure, and we must have that conviction when we open the Word of God and when we hear the Word of God taught. This must be in our mind. It contains no defilement. So whatever it says, I know it to be true, and I know it to be the good and proper way. If we do not believe God's Word to be true in everything, to be pure without any mixture of error, then we will be tempted to doubt it, to question it, to contradict the Bible, especially when we don't like what it says, when it rubs us the wrong way. But when we have this conviction of the purity of the Bible, then we're going to say, okay, I need to conform my life to the Bible. And if there's some area in my life that doesn't conform to the Bible, then that is impurity in me. The fault is in me. The sin is in me. And I need to get rid of that sin. 
when we see some belief or behavior in our life that contradicts the Bible, then we won't doubt the Bible, but we'll question ourselves. And we'll say, the fault doesn't lie in the Bible, the fault lies with me. Also, this conviction of the purity of the Bible, he says it leads him to love the Word of God. He says, therefore your servant or your slave loves it. Because the Word is very pure, the servants of God love it. They love it. He is a slave of God. He has no reason to doubt the will of his master, to question the will of his master. Why would he doubt or question his master's will, knowing that his master is righteous and his word is very pure? 141. 141. It says, I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. Here, he is small and despised in the estimation of the world. The unbelievers do not regard him as a righteous man. They do not regard him as a great man. They do not regard him as an honorable man. But he is small and despised in their eyes. This is the way it is with those who have this conviction. As it says in Hebrews chapter 11, they are men of whom the world was not worthy. These men are so great, like the prophet David. He is so great, so wonderful, so honorable, the world does not even deserve to have his presence in it. This is how great he is. And yet, according to Hebrews chapter 11, what happens to men like this? They are the ones who go around in sheepskins and goatskins. They are the ones who are destitute, who are afflicted, right? who are ill-treated, they are the ones who wander around in deserts, who, in mountains, who live in caves and in holes of the ground. Why is it that an honorable man, a true holy prophet of God, is small and despised? Because the world hates God, and the world hates the righteousness of God. So they give no thought to him, to his ways, to his word. They could care less about the prophet David and what he has to say. They actually despise him because of his faithfulness to God. They think that he's insane. He's out of his mind. He's a madman. Isn't this what happened to the Apostle Paul? Acts 26, 24 says, While Paul was saying this in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. While he's preaching the gospel to him, speaking to him of the righteousness of God. You're out of your mind, he says. You're learning. It's driving you crazy. Why, why are you talking like a madman? And in Psalm 69, verse 12, it says, Those who sit in the gate talk about me, and I am the song of drunkards. Even the drunkards are making fun of me. These people, right, who don't have a job, who are sitting over there in their own filth, in their own misery, even they're mocking me in this case. Didn't that happen to our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross? Even the thieves were mocking him and ridiculing him. People who were being executed weren't thinking about the judgment of God. At least not the one, but was instead mocking Christ. So people think him to be a fool. He's being persecuted for righteousness' sake. Yet, he says, I do not forget your precepts. I don't care what people say about me. That's what he is saying. He doesn't care that the drunkards are singing songs about him. The Apostle Paul isn't concerned that Festus thinks he's lost his mind. He's going to continue doing the will of God. 
He's going to keep preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's going to continue walking according to God's holy word. Because all a slave of Christ is pleased with is pleasing his master. That's all that's on his mind. The faithful, wise slave isn't concerned with what the other slaves are saying. He's not concerned with what other people are saying about him. All he cares is to hear his master commend him. For his master to say, well done, you good and faithful slave. That's all that he's living for. So the mockery and criticism of men, it's not going to drown out his love for the word of God. It's not going to keep him from doing the will of God. Right? If a little bit of ridicule causes us to fall away, what does that say about our faith? Doesn't it say that it's weak, that it's superficial, that it has no root within it, that it is a false faith? Well, that's not going to happen in his case, and it cannot happen in ours either. 142, 142, your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and your law is truth. The righteousness of God manifested in the holy word of God is everlasting. It does not change, never, based upon the opinions of men. It does not change according to the passage of time. If God declares something to be righteous, that declaration is based upon God's own eternal righteousness, and it cannot change. It was true the moment God declared it. The moment God reveals it, it is revealing the righteousness of God. And whenever He revealed it, it is revealing an eternal, everlasting righteousness. It is true whenever God declares it, and it is true for all generations. And it will never change. Whatever God reveals in his word is righteous and will remain righteous for all eternity. He, Matthew 24, 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And we remember Psalm 119, 89. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. This is why we can have confidence in the Bible. Even though... In terms of our proximity, the closest portions of the Bible were written 2,000 years ago. And we might be th tempted to think, and people have said this, well, why would, I, why would I live my life according to some ancient book? Right? Why would I live my life according to some book written to, right, who were raised in a different culture? How can it be of any value to me? How can I trust what it says? They didn't even have an iPhone. Right? They didn't even know about cars. Right? So why would I trust them? This is the kind of haughty, arrogant, spiteful attitude that you find in modern men, right? In so-called sophisticated men. Why would I trust what the Bible says? Because it was written so many years ago. Well, this is why we trust what the Bible says. The righteousness revealed in the Bible, the truths revealed in the Bible, they are everlasting. They are eternal truths. It reveals to us an everlasting righteousness. So whenever God declares to be righteous in one generation will remain righteous for all generations. For all generations. We can open our Bible, literally. We can close our Bible. We can open it at random, point our finger to a verse, and whatever verse we point to, we can say with full confidence, that verse is righteous. It is everlasting. It is revealing an eternal righteousness. And this is true all across the Bible. For example, Leviticus chapter 20. This would be one that would be controversial in our own day. 
Even many churches would reject this teaching. But we have to ask, is this righteous? Leviticus 20.13. Leviticus 20.13 says, and everyone has their Bible open. You see that I have mine open to Leviticus 20.13. I can turn it and show you I'm not making it up. This is what it actually says. If there is a man who lies with a male as those who lie with a woman, both of them have committed a detestable act. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. Now the question is, is Leviticus 20.13, is it righteous or is it unrighteous? Can we say in our own day that the sin of sodomy is a detestable act before God? Can we say in our day that those who commit this sin, this crime, deserve to be executed in the court of law and in the sight of God as well? Are these righteous words? Are these righteous judgments or are they unrighteous? Were they only righteous for a period of time? Only during the time of Moses or only for the nation of Israel, but not for any other nation? Are they everlastingly righteous? Or are they only temporarily righteous? Well, many today, even many Christians, would say that it's not loving to call a sodomite detestable. Actually, they would say it's not loving to use the term sodomite. They don't like that term. That's why we use it, right? Just to stick it... I mean, not just to stick in their face, but to use a biblical word, something that has some morality to it, right? They would say, we shouldn't use that word, and it's, we shouldn't say that it's detestable, because that lacks grace. It lacks grace, and it's not Christ-like, right? They'll say that as well. It doesn't show the love of Christ, so we shouldn't use those kinds of words. And we shouldn't advocate for the death penalty, they'll say, even many people, even many so-called Christians would say, we shouldn't advocate for the death penalty for anything, we need to be gracious, forgiving, right? Tolerant. We need to show love. Many Christians would say that. Not for any sin, but also not for the sin of sodomy. But whose wisdom is that based upon? Right? Whose understanding? Whose judgments? And they would say it isn't Christ-like. That it's not Christ-like. But who wrote Leviticus 20.13? Who declared this judgment to Moses. Is Jesus bipolar? Right? Is he a, fli a flipping and flopping all over the place? Is he double-minded? Because he said it here, but now he's changed his mind? Or are these people double-minded? He's not double-minded. And according to John 1.18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. So when Moses is conversing with God in the tabernacle, and God is revealing the word of God to Moses, who is he speaking to? He's speaking to Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is the one who spoke Leviticus 20.13 to Moses. These are his words, his judgments. And if these judgments came from Christ, which they did, and Christ is righteous, which he is, and his righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, which it is, then what remains true today? What remains righteous in our own day? The teaching of Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13, both concerning the behavior or the sin and concerning the penalty that is deserving of those who commit such sins. 
And that same line of reasoning we could apply to every single verse in the Bible. Every commandment found in the Bible. God's law is truth. It reveals to us a righteousness that is an everlasting righteousness. And it is not based upon the opinions of men, not based upon the culture of man, not based upon the passage of time, but it is based upon the very character of God, His everlasting righteousness. 143. Now, if we go out and say this publicly, what's going to happen to us? Well, 143, trouble and anguish. Trouble and anguish have come upon me, yet your commandments are my delight. Because he has this conviction of the everlasting righteousness of God, and because he's conforming his life to this righteousness, and he also, he's not afraid to openly talk about it, then he's going to have his detractors. He'll have his persecutors. Trouble and anguish are going to come upon him because the rabble does not want to hear about God's righteousness. And this is why the apostle says in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Or as the apostle says in Acts 14.22, Through many tribulations we must enter into the kingdom of God. People will despise They will hate, they will separate, they will malign us because we stand for the truth. We want peace, right? We want peace with all men. We want them to be reconciled to God. We want to live a quiet and a dignified life in all godliness, but they will not let us. They will instigate a riot. They will start a war with us. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. It says in Psalm 120 verse 7. Well, when this happens, we can't give up. We can't give up. Even if trouble and anguish come upon us, we cannot give up. We have to press on. We have to endure until the end. We cannot retreat whenever we start getting uh, fire, whenever people begin to lob rocks at us because we believe the truth. Nor can we defect and say, I'm going to go join them so that they don't persecute me like this. No, we can't do that. We can't doubt the goodness of God's word, but rather... Your commandments are my delight, he says. God's commandments and the righteousness that they reveal on everything, this must be our delight. We must believe these things. Then 144, your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live. Here he repeats the same truth. Your testimonies are righteous forever. God's word is righteous forever. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. And since this is the case, since these are eternal truths that will never pass away, then shouldn't we want to know what they are? Shouldn't we want to understand these things? So he prays, give me understanding. Let me understand your righteousness. Let me understand these eternal truths, this everlasting righteousness. This is what I need to know and understand so that I may live. Right? Live in both senses, right? Of course, spiritually. How can we live spiritually without understanding the righteousness of God? Without understanding our own unrighteousness? Without understanding the need for the righteousness of Christ to be imputed to us? We have to understand those things so that we can have spiritual life. The gospel is all about the righteousness of God, 
Right? This is as the Apostle says in Romans 1, 16 and 17. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith by faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it teaches us how we who are unrighteous can become righteous. So we need to know that. We need to understand that so that we can live, so that we can have salvation. But when we receive that righteousness of Christ at our conversion, then what does it do to us? Doesn't it cause us to want to live a righteous life? To conform ourselves to the righteousness of Christ? Which is what is lacking in the church today. Everyone wants to preach the imputed righteousness of Christ that we receive that makes us fit for heaven. And then you can go do whatever you want. But we have to also preach the righteousness of sanctification. That when we receive that righteousness of Christ, it changes us and causes us to live a godly life. That we must pursue righteousness in the way that we live. And if we don't pursue righteousness, then one, we will not see God. And secondly, God might put us to death. He might, we might die prematurely in this life if we do not understand these things rightly. Aren't there examples of people in the Bible who died prematurely because they were not understanding rightly the righteousness of God and how it should impact their life and change the way that they live? That happened to Ananias and Sapphira, didn't it? They died right there on the spot because they did not understand the righteousness of God. And we know from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that we read every week, 1 Corinthians 11, 27 to 32, there the apostle tells those in Corinth that some of them are dying because they're taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner with sin. Well, doesn't that relate to righteousness? Because they're not doing it in the righteous way, in the proper way. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven: Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judge ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord, so that we will not be condemned along with the world. There, for this reason, because they're taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy way, not in a righteous way, but in a sinful way, then some of them are weak, some sick, and even a number asleep, meaning that they have died because of their sin. We need to understand true righteousness and pursue it so that we do not come under the judgment of God. We need understanding in order to give us spiritual life and even to sustain our physical life and our life for all eternity. And where is this righteousness found? Only in the Word of God. Only in the Word of God, revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. So then let us fix our faces like flint toward this righteousness, and not trust in our own, and not trust in any opinion or idea that comes from man, but trust only in the righteousness of God, revealed in the Word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father,
we confess that you are a righteous God. And Lord, all of your judgments are upright. Lord, every word of God proves true. Lord, we know that there is no lie in the Bible. That everything there is true and it is good and it is right. Father, we pray that you give to us this conviction. Lord, that we would be convinced of this. Lord, not not only in our mind. And Lord, that we would not merely say it with our mouth. But that it would be evident in our life as well. That Lord, when we see and come to this understanding. Lord, that some part of our life whether it be something we believe or some action, Lord, is not consistent, Lord, does not conform to the righteousness found in your word, then, Father, we pray that we would see that we are living in sin, Lord, that we are committing a wickedness against you, an evil against you, that we would repent of that, and, Lord, that we would conform our life to your holy word. Lord, we want to live godly before you, Lord, we need to. We, Lord, we must have holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Lord, that holiness, not only that is given to us through the imputed righteousness of Christ, but Lord, also that holiness that is manifested, Lord, in the good fruit that you produce in us by your Spirit. We know that the Spirit is a Spirit of righteousness and that if He is dwelling within us, He will produce righteousness in each and every one of us. So, Father, we pray that this fruit would abound within us. Lord, that just as it was said of men like Abraham and Moses and the prophet David, that they were righteous men. Lord, or as it was said of Job, an upright man, blameless in all of his ways. So, Father, may that same thing be true of us. Lord, may we live godly lives before you. And Lord, we pray that we would depend, Lord, not on our own wisdom, but only in your wisdom, Lord, found in your word. Lord, whenever we suffer because of this conviction, Lord, we pray that you would give us the strength to bear up under it, Lord, to be faithful to you, Lord, to not turn to the left or to the right, Lord, to not forsake your word, but that, Lord, we would live to please you, Lord, as faithful slaves of Christ. Lord, not concerned with the praise of men, but concerned only with the praise of God. And so, Lord, we pray that we would be a faithful and wise slave to our master. So, Lord, may we pursue these things, and, Lord, we pray that you would give us more and more confidence in the truthfulness of your word, Lord, in its purity, in its righteousness, and that, Lord, we would have this conviction and that we would conform our life to your holy word. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.